So just two minutes remaining in the first period of extra time as David Robertson launches the long throw into the box. Van der Aert going to touch. There's Nicholas. It's back to Mason. 2-1 to Aberdeen. Hockey start on the track. And the long throw did all the damage. Hello and welcome to the latest Here We Go podcast. This show is another of our classic season reviews, and this season, well, this season was a good one. It's the only time Aberdeen have won more than one trophy in a season out with the Alex Ferguson era, and, somewhat depressingly, the last season we lifted the Scottish Cup. It's season 89-90 under the spotlight. And to help us review it, we've got a couple of guests who remember it pretty well. You'd have found one of them on the Hamden Terraces for those two cup finals that season, Nowadays, he's more likely to be found in an English Premier League press box, but we're delighted to give Jonathan Northcroft the chance to wax Liverpool with the Dons every now and then. How are you, Jonathan? Very good, thanks, Richard. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting through lockdown just about. Yes, yes, we're all still struggling through that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I suppose you'll be delighted to get back to a uh, Premier League press box sometime soon, and um, we'll all be delighted to get back to the stands. Um, then we've got a guy who played the vast majority of the games that season and took the final kick of a ball in that whole campaign, one that made him an enduring Aberdeen icon. It's a real pleasure to welcome back Brian Irvin to the show. Hi, Brian. Good Richard. 30 years ago, it doesn't seem quite possible. I mean, how could we all possibly be uh, old enough to have uh, either been at or played a part in those games of season 89-90? But, uh, but it happened. And uh, Brian, first question. I mean, people rem- rem- remember it really as Alex Smith's reign, but um, Jockey Scott was co-manager. And how did that division of labour work between the two of them? It worked very well. They, they worked well together. I think co-managers, you have to work well together or else it just won't work. I mean, normally you've got the manager and an assistant manager um, and the manager's in charge and he gives instructions and gets help uh, from the assistant. But with co-managers, it's really got to be both are equal. And in, in Alec and, and Jockey's case, they were very much equal. So we just looked on both 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 as uh, gaffers. And then Drew Jarvie was like the assistant. So yeah, it, it was a really good combination, and they worked really well together. Ahead of that, uh, ahead of that season, Jonathan, there wasn't much turnover in terms of the squad. You still had a lot of experienced professionals on the books. Um, I think the only real change really was. Uh, in the early part of the season was uh, Ian Cameron came in from St Mirren young winger mm. and uh, John Hewitt uh, finally left the club um, Hewitt probably a guy who obviously rose to the highest of heights early on in his Aberdeen career but a change at that point was probably a good thing for John I think so I mean my, my memory of John Hewitt is actually always picture of him in the Evening Express when he was I think 15 and, and maybe 16 and he'd chosen Aberdeen over pretty much every club in the country um, I, and I, I remember the picture of he was kind of like vaulting over his garden fence or something outside his house in Aberdeen and from that moment almost you, there was a kind of buzz about John Hewitt that this kid was going to be the most special of the lot and even though he scored maybe the two most important goals in our history uh, arguably um, I don't it never it never quite fulfilled the promise that he'd had and I think by that time um, he probably needed a change and, and um, it was it was good for Aberdeen to move forward but I mean, it's one of those you know, you always talk about talent, unfulfilled talent for those two moments alone, the guy's an absolute legend and, and gave us all, you know they were the best moments of our lives so of course with Ian Jess starting to come through so the conveyor belt was on a roll again to be honest, him leaving actually, John, John leaving didn't, didn't create a particularly great start from, from a fan's point of view. Um, we were looking at other things and as I say, there was, there was youth starting to come through anyway. So ahead of the actual league campaign kicking off, Brian, it was a pre-season tour to Holland. Now Holland is a destination which loomed quite large in Aberdeen's um, 
destiny around that point in time. They'd done the pre-season games in Holland the season before and of course had dipped into the Dutch transfer market. A point we'll come back to later. Do you remember anything about those pre-season games? Yeah, they were always good games. Great facilities in Holland as well. Um, and, and, you know, I think the fact that I think we went three or two or three seasons consecutively to, to Holland for pre-season just shows how, how highly we're, we're, uh, the managers re- regarded the facilities and, and the opposition that we're faced up to. Um, and it, you, you, you'll be fine when you ask the question later, but I think it was a definitely a, the start of the, the period where we started dipping into the, the Dutch market, if you like, whether it be Theo Snelders or Paul Mason, who wasn't Dutch but was playing with Groningen at the time in Holland. And, and I can't remember the agent's name. I think it was Ton Van Halen was the agent... <laughs> That was in charge of all the the, the names that were, he was finding for Alex, Alec and Jockey, um, but he must take a lot of credit for some of the, the successful players that came to Aberdeen from Holland uh, at that time, and it was definitely a rich place where Aberdeen could could draw in that market, and you know people at Theo Snelders were, were just amazing how much they did for Aberdeen and the impact they made in Aberdeen's success and. Not only still at that time, but just how, how well Theo's regarded today. And Theo, Paul Mason, Big Willem, Willem van der Ark, regular visitors to Aberdeen as ex-players now. And that just shows how, how top quality guys they were as players, but also people as well. And they were great people as well as great players. More generally about pre-season tours, Brian, I don't know if the football fan perception of them is quite the same as being within the camp. It is important to get away and to get that bond together early on in the season, isn't it? You can get your pre-season work done without the distractions you might have at home. It's an important time for a for a football team, the pre-season. Oh, definitely, yeah. I think, um, as I say, that's why for about three seasons at least or so, we're over in Holland regular. I think the facilities were way above this, the facilities at home uh, that would have been able to use unless we're going to use Petordu, which you wouldn't have done. You know, you can't use your pitch to, to do your pre-season training on. So then it would have been Seaton Park or whoever were doing our pre-season training. Uh, that was okay for the running, but you just didn't have the facilities that you had in Holland and the opposition, although they weren't Ajax or Feyenoord. Um, it was still good quality opposition in the lower leagues in, Hol- in Holland, so that was that was a combination: the quality of team and the quality of facilities that we're getting to train on and play against made it a no-brainer for the managers to, to go. And I think today clubs still go over to Holland because the facilities are there to just take advantage of and to enjoy. It's uh, it's not within the scope of this uh, this chat, Brian. Obviously, but there was one pre-season you ended up in Bermuda. Is that right? Well, that was a wee bit different. <laughs> I don't know. That, that, that was... Um, I don't know about the facilities being good. But, but the bonding was good. The bonding was good. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the, experience, the experience was good. I mean, even, it wasn't exactly... Because of the, it was a, quite a long travel and, and everybody was tired, obviously. And we stopped over in New York. Um, but we were told when we were in New York we couldn't do anything. So here you are in New York... And all you could do was go to your bed for the connecting flight in the morning down to Bermuda. So it was a bit frustrating. And I found out in latter years that I went to bed, <laughs> or my, my roommate went to bed, I think it was Brian Grant and me went to bed, but quite a few of the guys, the more experienced older guys, Jim Bett, Bobby Connor and thing, they managed to enjoy a wee bit of New York. <laughs> so, of course, that, that was the start of the trip and that just was the start of the... The, the problems if you like so it was great idea probably ideal trip for an end of season trip but maybe not for pre-season that Aberdeen team you've spoken briefly Jonathan about Ian Jess breaking into a team and he did um, having made his debut at the end of the previous season it must have been a, a bit of a joy to break into that Aberdeen team because you had such a number of experienced professionals in there uh, just to ease the path if you were yeah, it's always important, I think, for young players to um, to break in when the right conditions are there. And I think it can make or break a young player. So for Jess to come in at a time when you still had Miller, Miller and McQuish, you had the quality of Jim Beth, 
Kimmy, you know, you had people like Brian who knew the club inside out quality, experienced players. Um, I think it was great for him. And, and one of the things, I mean, I, I, I interviewed Ian Jess a few times and it was fascinated me because the guy's talent was, was extraordinary. One of the most talented footballers I've, I've seen play for Aberdeen and had a really good career. But he, he himself would say that he always sort of felt that he, 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 he maybe didn't quite deliver what he, what he could have done in his career. And I think he was somebody that, I got the impression speaking to Ian anyway, that he, he, he was somebody that maybe, I don't want to say overthought it, but maybe thought quite a lot, maybe thought too much and, 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 and needed that bit of confidence, needed, um, maybe needed the older players around him and experience and, and, um, that definitely helped his introduction. I think if he'd come in at a more difficult time, he might not have been able to thrive the way he did. Um, but you know what a what a player he was at that age. What a what a fabulous footballer he was to watch. And when him and Scott Booth were playing together, it, you know, for, for a couple of years, it just looked like Aberdeen had the future of Scottish football on their hands. And maybe it didn't quite happen, but I, maybe a little bit like John Hewitt before them. What they did deliver was great anyway. Some youngsters are pretty precocious, Brian. Some will come with a huge air of confidence. What was Ian like when he first broke into the first team squad? Can you remember? Yeah, yeah, I remember Ian well. I, remember, I think I actually roomed with him when his first, uh, one of his first games. It was, a, it was a reserve game before he made his debut against Falkirk. We were playing Falkirk. It was, it was his first game with the reserves when he was, was called into the... Um, the, the team and, and he he was just a humble guy and he was a good listener and that's the qualities of a good attitude and that's what Ian had and as he developed and gained confidence from his career as it went on he, he obviously get more confident as, as people do you, you know your confidence grows but he always remained humble came from Portsmouth and I think that was the grounding his mum was always uh, making sure he's kept his feet in the ground and I think Ian always did keep his feet in his ground and I like what, what Jonathan's saying there about uh, John Hewitt and Ian and a lot of people say oh, the show wasn't fulfilled but for me as a, an, a fellow professional uh, I, I think their potential was fulfilled because John Hewitt for example couldn't have done more but however mm. long he might have you know he scored a winning goal in the European Cup Winners Cup and he scored an important goal in the, the, the quarter finals of the in the Cup Winners Cup, you know, you can't do much better than that in your career. You know, maybe you could do more and more and more times, but that's getting almost to the, the then you're in the, the category of your Messi's and your Ronaldo's who just are so good all the time. To, for guys like Ian and, and John to have hit the heights that they did, uh, for me, it just shows the quality. They had that quality, and yet there'll always be a question mark, could they have done more or more often, and time times pass, so we'll never know. But for them, for me anyway, they have done it. They have done it at the top level, uh, you know. And, and all credit to them for that. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point, Jonathan. It's uh, I guess it's um, that concept of excellence having a really long tail. Um, I think Nick Hornby brings it up in his book when he uh, refers to Gus Caesar famously. Um, about how, you know, Gus must have been so far ahead of all his contemporaries at every level. You know, he's uh, one of the top uh, youth players. He gets into the first team, not just any team, but at the league champions. You know, that whole idea of how this guy who was regarded as a figure of fun was still an excellent football player. So excellence has a long tail, doesn't it? Oh, I I mean, I'm always conscious that any, any professional footballer I'm watching on the pitch at any level has almost won the lottery in terms of fulfilling talent because just to get there is, is an incredible feat um, and yeah uh, listen to what Brian said it, it's interesting and I, I, I suppose I, I agree and I'm talking in the context of Aberdeen in the 1980s when from a fan's point of view you were greedy you were greedy because the club had reached such heights and you just had an expectation of the absolute very best now in hindsight Somebody being as good as Ian Jess was, somebody doing what John Hewitt is, is fabulous, it's unbelievable. But I remember being, as a kid, disappointed that Fergie didn't follow up the Cup Winners' Cup by winning the European Cup. I was a bit miffed by him. Do you know what I mean? Expectations were ridiculous at that time. 
and it's not a criticism at all of people like Ian and, and uh, Scotty Booth and, and, and John Hewitt. It, it, it's, it's what the club, I suppose, has had to live with ever since 1980, well, 1985, maybe 1986. Um, just the absolute high bar. But what I could say is that Ian Jess was good enough that if he'd been around in 1983, he'd have been part of that team for sure, and he'd have been, you know, alongside the the four youngsters that we had, probably in that lineup. So the early part of the season, um, again, UEFA Cup around about those uh, those years. It seemed to be that we'd go out narrow defeats quite often, and that year was very much the same. Rapid Vienna in the first round. Now, I'm, I'm going to come to you, Jonathan, first for the first leg. Um, Brian, I think you missed out in the first leg, but played in the second. Um, Rapid Vienna, uh, were you at that game, Jonathan? Because the one memory, no. overriding memory for me from that one is that they were the most cynical, most dirty <laughs> side that I've ever seen at Vitaudry, and that includes some, well, quite dirty old firm teams to have uh, made the journey north. Yeah, no, I wasn't at that game. I, this was actually, for me, this was the first season. Um, I went to university in, in 1989, um, and I'd been to Tordry for about eight or nine years as a regular before then. So it was, this was the first season I kind of watched the club remotely, I suppose. So, yeah, no, I, I wasn't at that game. I do, I do remember... The, yeah, I, I do remember that game and, and, and that sort of that tie, and, and it was in the context of, of quite a lot of anticlimaxes in Europe, where we always seem to get a you know difficult early draw, no defeat, all that kind of stuff. And, and I've talked about the expectation that was that was there before. So yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, 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 rapid Vienna though, you got to think as, as well that in in, the, in that era, you know. Austrian clubs were pretty good. Rapid Vienna beat put Celtic out of the UEFA Cup round about that time as well, and I remember them being a right good side. Brian, you played as I say in the second game. Um, I think you'd um, it's maybe your second European appearance. I think you'd also played against Feyenoord the, uh, a couple of years before. Out and away goals, a good side, but that must have some of the guys in the dressing room who we'd spoken about had still had been there throughout all the highs. That must have been such a disappointment in that dressing room. Oh, very de- uh, de- definitely disappointing. You know, you Alec and Willie, especially Alec, who had tasted European success. Willie was not as involved that season uh, because of injuries and, and whatnot. But you know, for guys like that to be in the team, they would be expecting to get through these type of games. And it's just a th- it's a fine line in football. You know, away goals in, in Europe. That's like the f- that's a dividing line between basically success and failure because at the end of the day it's 2-2 it's just it's because of away goal you get that advantage so um, it was disappointing and it was close uh, the game over there was just a we just tried to defend and, and try and hold on to that two, narrow 2-1 victory we had at Pitordre and just on the night a goal was it short off? yeah remember, right? yeah it was yeah uh, who was a good player, I remember, and obviously did well in his career, uh, in his country, whatnot, over the over the years. And that's just as I say, it's just that fine line, unfortunately. And, and unfortunately, most of the times, after Aberdeen was so successful in '83, and even the following season, getting to the semi-finals in the Cup Winners' Cup uh, in '84. Um, after that, Aberdeen suffered some narrow defeats and just went the other side of the fine line and. Uh, and that's what it's all about. There is it's so, you know, it's not as if there's a massive gulf between the teams. It's just so tight. It's just going to take an away goal or a, a bad decision or a, or a dubious decision to knock you out. You played fullback that night in Vienna, I think. Uh, think Brian, um, how do how did you find playing at fullback? I guess in those early years, um, before you kind of cemented your place, which happens later on that season. It was a case of um, taking your opportunities where you could find them. Yeah, very much. I mean, I, I always used to think back, I played virtually every position for Aberdeen, literally, including goalkeeper, you know, and because you, you didn't have a substitute goalkeeper in those days in a lot of the games. And so if there was an injury, I would go in the goals as well. So I played three times in the goals for yep. Aberdeen. Um, so yeah, I would just play anywhere, right back, especially in an away game in Europe, that was a defensive role. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't like, a winger or a you know a, a forward go- 
base player. It was basically just a, a defender, so it was just making it a solid defence, hopefully, and we tried to do that. I was just happy to play for any position for Aberdeen, as I say, whether it be goalkeeper, right back, centre forward, you name it. I think it's um, very modest of you not to mention how many clean sheets you kept in those uh, three uh, three appearances and goals as well, Brian. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the highlight obviously was the one against Rangers, you know, keeping a clean sheet at Pittori in terrible conditions. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Theo got a bad injury that day, but, you know, keeping a clean sheet against Rangers was, was quite a feat. And I'm thinking, why did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the following season, of course. Um, Theo did miss a fair part of this season as well, yeah. but we'll come to that in a few minutes' time. So the UEFA Cup was a disappointment, but and I suppose some of us in the support might have been girding our loins for further disappointment in the League Cup, because for the third season running, it was a final against Rangers at Hampden. But this time, thankfully, we came out on the right side. Um, a pretty titanic affair, and um, Jonathan, you, you obviously remember this one. Oh, wow, yeah. Well, so, um, I mean, I think I went to about five or six games that season when I was either at home or the other two were cup finals. So, um, it's just a brilliant, uh, it's a brilliant sort of memory, really, because, I mean, not, you know, it's a missing going to matches. And the first game, the first game I saw that season was that cup final. Um, I remember getting the train over from Edinburgh with one of my best pals and my brother, meeting up with my, my dad and my uncle. Um, I've been kind of toying with how much to say about this because <laughs> what I do remember is going to one of the bars around Hamden um, and the place just being full of reds and the songs were all about Ian Durant. I won't, I won't lie. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I was, trying to, I was trying to think now, you know, when I kind of, as a journalist, I sort of, you know, write face things condemning fans for misbehaving and all that sort of stuff but I do remember I do remember singing a few of the songs that I probably shouldn't have done um, and I'm not proud of that now but anyway I do remember I do remember the atmosphere before and in that bar lots of Ian and songs lots of stuff about Rangers and I was behind the goal um, I was behind the goal where Rangers got their penalty and I, I, my biggest memory of the game is that penalty you know we'd scored We'd scored through Paul Mason, typical Paul Mason goal, header, and I could sort of picture it dribbling in at the far post. Um, there was a brilliant, there was just a titanic battle between Ali McCoist and Willie Miller all game. And he, two greats of Scottish football playing against each other. And both, you know, both of them knew every trick in the book. And I just, I was transfixed watching this battle and I, I just remember Ali backing into Willie Miller, just going down the way he did, and as George Smith, who, let's say, had a bit of form for that kind of decision when Rangers were playing, uh, when he pointed the spot, I just remember Ali's grin as he got up off the ground. It's it's a, it's my biggest memory of the day is just seeing Ali this little smirk on his face, having bought that penalty. Obviously, it was converted. I think it was Mark Walters that scored. And I guess the thing is, that was a very, very good Rangers team. A very, very good Rangers team. Um, but we were really good. And the whole narrative at that point was set up for Rangers to go on and win the final. You know, they'd weathered the storm, they'd got their, they'd bought their penalty or whatever. And it was, it was one of the, it's one of my favourite cup finals that we ever won. Because we stood up to that, we've got back from that setback, um, played really well. Um, I mean, it was just a tough, tight game, um, and Paul Mason just had this unbelievable knack for um, a bit like. I mean, I mean, Billy Stark was a, a player that kind of divided everybody at the time. Paul Mason was a much more popular player. You know, Billy Stark divided fans, but Paul Mason had that Billy Stark ability to just pop up in the box and just sort of come in behind things and, and, and score them and that um, that winning goal was, was was kind of typical of you know long throw flick on Charlie gets the ball sort of nudges it to the side and then from nowhere there's Paul Mason and, and it's a kind of scuffed finish it kind of you know trickles into the, into the goal um, 
but that was him. That was him. Absolutely magic. And and that is one of the best teams I think Aberdeen have beaten in a cup final because that Rangers team was great. But I, I'm obviously going to say I thought I felt we deserved it. Um, and yeah, just just remember coming down the steps, a hand in the old kind of terrace steps, almost being swept along with, with my my dad and my pals and stuff like that. And um, yeah, fun, fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Uh, Brian, I'm sure William Miller took that decision well uh, going into a dressing room at half time that day. Oh, is this a, is disappointed because you know to say the least, uh, he, rightly, my opinion, rightly so, didn't think it was a penalty. Uh, but that's football, I suppose. You know, I think Ali McCoy, that was part of his game. Was able to maybe, you know, it's not, it's not, it wasn't a penalty, but he just, he, the saying goes, you play for it, and he, you know, and credit in his part is that he got the penalty. Um, you know, and whether it was, whether VAR nowadays would have given it or not, I don't know. But, um, on the day it was given and it was all square but Paul it was his day it was Paul's day um, and you know and I think a long throw from David Robertson because that that was a good ammunition for us you know that long throw that David had in his armoury and when you get throw ends up towards an opposition penalty box it was always a a real better than a free kick in some respects and obviously in, on the cup final day it proved to be the case you know when the ball came in and then laid back as Jonathan said by Charlie eventually and, and Paul came in and it was just Paul Mason had a fantastic game that day uh, and that was Paul Mason's final and you know he's he I think you know it's a, it's a good comparison with Billy Stark and they both had had their qualities as a midfielder who were who were capable of getting the end of things and scoring goals, um, and you know it, it's the beauty of football. It's all about opinions. Who was the better one, or who was who was better? And, you know, and again from a professional point of view, I would just say both were equally as good for the team, and that was what was beneficial to the team. And Billy scored his goals in Scottish Cup finals and League Cup finals for Aberdeen in previous gener- generation with early mid eighties with Alec Ferguson. Paul in the 89 he, he came good that day and you know and against as you say Jonathan a very very good Rangers team got the victory for us and got that amazing victory to to reverse the, the disappointment of the previous two seasons when we've lo- we lost very closely in the cup finals to Rangers in the League Cup Now I sense Brian you're not a man to, to hold on to these things for too too much but I'm, I'm intrigued on the back of William Miller what's the worst decision that you've ever had go against you? Hmm. I suppose, well, towards the end of my career, I had a couple of sending-offs, so I would have to put them as personal disappointments, but probably, well, yeah, at the time, the refs were right, but ironically, one of the decisions was the last man tackle when it first came in in the way back in 1989 or whatever, and it was just I made a tackle and tried to win the ball and unfortunately missed the ball and caught the player, so I got sent off, so it was the double whammy of giving away a penalty. They scored from the penalty the team that were playing Ross County that day, and uh, we lost the game 1-0 and I was sent off so it was like three disappointments in the winner um, so that would be my biggest disappointment but it wasn't it wasn't a criticism of the ref at the time because that was the rules but ironically I think the rules change and it would only be a, a pe- well it would still be a penalty but you would only be booked so that, that gives you some sort of comfort that you were sent off for something you wouldn't be sent off for today for but uh, certainly that was a disappointment for me yeah, they changed it a couple of years ago, didn't they? Took out the double jeopardy. It's funny, Jonathan, it's the 40th anniversary of a lot of things, obviously, that happened in 1980, but one of them being the English FA Cup final. Remember that year for Brookings' goal, but one of the other things was a really horrendous Willie Young challenge on Paul Allen as he was going <laughs> through. And it's, it's so... I mean, it's quite weird to watch football from that era now, like a full game, because the pass-back is one thing that immediately kind of yeah. strikes you as just being as weird. But that just like it strikes you as so... How is that not a red card? Because William Young has no intention whatsoever of going for the ball. It's just such a blatant trip on Allen as he's going clean through to, to score a second. Anyway, that's quite a diversion from the Aberdeen team of 89-90. Brian, I was going to say, you, you were on the 14 that day. You were, on, um, you were on the bench. You came on with about five, six minutes to go for Ian Jess just to shore things up even though did you still feel part of it did you still feel as if you'd made a contribution and at that time uh, Richard definitely I felt 
you know, I've always said clearly I'm a supporter who get the chance to be a player and be on the park, and that's an, an example of, of of for me. Had I got had nothing else happened after that, I'd have had that opportunity to be on the pitch after the game when we were holding the cup up and doing that lap of honour. In a way that a fan, if he was to do it, would be would be lifted and, and, and taken away with the police, obviously. But that, that was that was the difference, you know. I had that, so that day, although I played a very very small part in the game itself, I played games in the, the in the games leading up to the final um, in the early rounds. But you know, on that day, I didn't play a very big part in terms of my contribution. But to just be part of the, that celebration of lifting the cup and doing the lap of honour meant that I felt that was special and so I'll always remember that obviously when it came to the Scottish Cup final later in the year it was a different reason you were so happy in the the lap of honour but that that was the time I felt you're an Aberdeen player here you've been part of an Aberdeen occasion today and that would have been of course your your first medal at Aberdeen as well because um, you only just breaking through the side the the last trophy in 86 so your first medal as a Dons player yeah, I mean, I was in the, funny enough, um, I saw it on the television recently, the, the, the 86 Cup final against Hearts, the 3-0 game, um, and I was actually on the bench that day because ah, I played the previous week. I wasn't on the bench, no, 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 I wasn't on the bench as in a sub, I was on the bench ah, as okay. it was just, it must have been a big wooden bench in those days, and just a big old-fashioned wooden bench, and Alex Ferguson very cleverly after making my first team debut in the league game in the previous week against Clyde Bank, did okay in the game 6-0, we won. And as a reward for that, you, you let me as part of the, uh, be a part of the squad A team that was in the Scottish Cup fight. And that was good man management from uh, Alex Ferguson. And of course, that summer they went to the World Cup Scotland um, and Wally got an injury at the start of 86. So he was out for the start of the season. So... You know, I came into the team for about eight or nine games before Alec and Wally resumed their partnership. And I think that was, again, down to the man management, Alec Ferguson, being so good that I was confident enough to make that step into the team the next season without feeling this is a massive step. It just felt you were part of the team and it was all down to how you involved me in this, the Scottish Cup in 1986, even though I was never going to play in that game. And it's, it's a similar way with the League Cup. Even though you only put a small part as coming off the bench... That just gives you that wee bit of confidence, Richard, to then take on to your next experience you get. And fortunately for me, or whatever as the history books have said, it was the Scottish Cup final later in the season, but you got that confidence from being on the bench and coming off even for mm-hmm. just a short, short spell. Well, after the League Cup victory, um, November brought two pretty significant events, uh, Jonathan. One of them positive. Um, Aberdeen went and signed a guy that was a current European Cup holder. A forward, probably as skillful as any that we've seen at Pataudry down the years, to be honest, Hans Johes. Yeah, he's as good. He's as good a player as I've seen play for Aberdeen in terms of talent, no doubt about it. And it's just odd to think of Aberdeen signing a a guy who, as you say, played in the, the previous year's European Cup final. Um, I think he was bought to replace Ruud Hullet at, um, at at PSV Eindhoven, which is quite a thought. Um, and he and he left because he couldn't, you know, him and Romario were competing <laughs> for a place, and he, he, he just lost out to Romario. It's unbelievable. Um, but we had this great sort of um, run of Dutch signings, which maybe tailed off a little bit when you got to the Ten Cats and Van der Ven's. They were good players, but they weren't quite as good as Theo Schnelders and and Superhands. Um, and it was just a, it was a great a great coup. Um, and there's a buzz about him straight away. Obviously, scored that fantastic. Was it his debut, the, the Dunfermline goal? It was an early, yeah, early in his yeah. the, 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 the overhead kick. Announced himself. Um, had a brilliant relationship with Charlie Nicholas. Um, he had something different about him. He, I just remember he was very kind of, he was very dynamic, um, a very athletic. You know, we talk about how football's changed. He seemed very athletic and quick and sharp and dynamic and. Maybe an Aguero type, I don't know, maybe I'm romanticising that, but um, he was loved straight away, um, seemed like a real coup, captured everyone's imagination, um, and, you know, yeah, just just 
an absolute favourite and ended up going to the World Cup that year, I think. I think, he, I think yeah, he did. He did. Um, I think the Dutchman would be second or third favourites for the World Cup that uh, year. And we had yeah. two guys, not just in the squad, but uh, he always came on, I think, in the game against Germany in the second round. Brian, thinking back to his debut against Dunfermline, yes, he scores two goals, um, but neither of them happen without Brian Irvin assists. Well, that was it, yeah. That's part of your job in the team, you know. The unknown bit, the unseen bit, rather. But, yeah, I remember especially the overhead kick that Jonathan spoke about there, a tremendous goal. Um, but the great cross came in to link Bobby Connor, and I got up and headed it back across goal, but never for a minute did you expect he was going to do an overhead kick like he did. The second one was a wee bit more simpler, but it was a headed uh, finish, I think, he had from my not back. But, yeah, that, that was a good day. We got off to a, we had a great week. His first week of um, signing, we beat Dunfermline 3-0, then we beat Rangers 1-0 with a wonderful hand, Seal House goal, and then a 5-0 win against Mirna, I think. So what a week, and he, we just arrived. And he, he, was a, he was a flamboyant, charismatic player, and... You know, just had that wee bit of extra skill. I mean, all the Dutch players, you know, the other ones, just Teal Tenkat, Peter van der Ven, they all had qualities about them, though, that, as I said at the beginning, just added something to the team in a way that I don't think at the time any Scottish player would have been able to do in the same way. And, and that's why the team did so well, really, during the, this particular season, but in the, this era. You know, for example, the next year we went, we ran Rangers so close in the league, as, as we all know. Um, but a lot of that credit is going down to the, the, the influence and the quality that the Dutch players brought to the team. When a club makes a, a sort of statement signing like a, a Charlie Nicholas, obviously you were there when he came in, or a Hans Heelhuis, it's obviously a big lift to the supporters. But what's it like inside a dressing room when, when somebody of that sort of talent, that sort of pedigree is being bought by the club you're at? Is it is it a nervous place because some people are worried for their, for their future? Or, yeah, what's it like? I think, thinking Charlie's example, Charlie Nicholas was just, everybody, all the players were probably just like the fans, as excited as the fans were about the signing of Charlie Nicholas. That was a big signing in the day, at that time, in that era. You know, people today, young, young supporters won't really know who Charlie Nicholas was today. But Charlie at the time was a big name. You know, I don't know what the comparison would be with somebody today. But Charlie was a big name, he had quality written all over his stuff in training and, and the games that he played in. The one thing he was lacking to begin with was his fitness, but Alec Smith and Jockey got him fit in the pre-season after his first season, after Ian Porterfield had signed him, and then you saw the real quality of Charlie, and you know, Charlie played a big part in the 89-90 season in the double success. I mean, we say the double success, it's a double success and finishing second in the league, so really it's almost very, very close to a, a, a treble, you know, as we would get. Um, but that shows the quality of the team. It, it, it was a really good team, Aberdeen. That's me speaking as a supporter more more than a, a player here, a teammate. Definitely a really good team. I could, all, I could literally name it if I didn't get nervous and get mixed up, but I couldn't normally name the team, even in defence. David Robertson, Stuart McKimmy, the fullbacks. That's quality fullbacks you had. We spoke about Theo on the goal. But your midfield was really strong as well with Jim Bett, Brian Grant, just the unassuming, quiet player that just got on with the glamorous stuff and do the tidy jobs. Paul in the midfield, you know, you had quality, quality players in every position, and and we were very fortunate. We didn't have a lot of injuries. Obviously, the, the disappointment for Wally himself was Wally Miller was injured to 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 not be able to finish the season. But thank, or hopefully, I helped cover that. For that season, we get the penalty and the, and the shootout and the, the game against Celtic. But you know, the, the team pretty much picked itself, and with a regular team that we picked week in week out, or not, I picked, but the managers picked week in week out, and that that made a, a big contribution to the continuity that the players kind of knew each other and knew how to, to play off each other. Well, Jonathan, as, as Brian rightly says, it was a it was a fairly consistent team line-up and in the second half of that season the consistent centre-halves were Alex McLeish and Brian Irvin because in November of that season William Miller suffered uh, well essentially it was a reoccurrence of an earlier knee injury while playing for Scotland against Norway um, helping Scotland to qualify for a World Cup um, yes kids that did once, once happen on a regular <laughs> basis um, so clearly 
And he said he's going to miss a guy of Willie Miller's talents. And he said in the world. But for a team which had relied on him, had him as this totemic figure for the past 15 years, it took a long time for the Dons and the support, I think, to readjust to life without Willie Miller. That's true, although um, if, if, if ever you needed a player to kind of step in um, to that leadership role, I mean, Alex McLeish would have been any club's captain of any, any era but for the fact we had Willie Miller. And I remember Alex, he, 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 at the time, it didn't, it didn't it, you know, Willie Miller's been a huge myth, well, was a huge miss, but at the time... Alex was such an experienced senior player, such a good player. And I'm not just saying this because Brian's on the podcast, but, I mean, he'd done his apprenticeship at the club, and when he came in and played with Alex, there wasn't really a drop in, in defensive quality. Um, they had a great partnership. It was uh, it was two very competitive, rugged, uncompromising, um, experienced players who, you know... <laughs> Yes, Willie Miller's Willie Miller, but it wasn't. It wasn't. I, I, don't, I, I think Willie Miller's influence, you know, generally as a as a captain. Yeah, of course, but actually on the pitch, I didn't. I didn't feel uh, it was a particular factor in, in Aberdeen falling short in any way in the next in the next year or two. I thought Alex was ready to take over. Uh, the best way I can say is I think Alex was ready to become the kind of leader, and, and obviously Brian was more than ready to play. Was he, um, I mean, obviously, Brian, you arrived in 1985, five, five years, yeah. so sorry, and, um, you know, he was at that point already a huge icon, double European, double European trophy winner, McLeish as well, regulars for Scotland, daunting, to say the least, to, to come in and try and, to try and shadow that and learn from that, or yeah. were they approachable, not- or... Very daunting. Yeah, Alec was very approachable. Wally was a, Wally was always just that wee bit uh, above or aloof mm-hmm. of, of the, the the rest. And in some ways, it's because of who he was in terms of what he'd done in the football. Um, so yeah, but I had a better relationship with Alec, for example. And you know, when I played for Scotland, the, the, the time I called up for the first cap was a because of a number of call-offs and the reason was that because of the understanding I had with Alec in, the, in Aberdeen's defence the manager at the time Andy Roxburgh for Scotland wanted to use, use us both, both in the game against Romania in the European Championship quick game um, so that, you know I think that relationship and Stuart McKinney was at right back as well for Scotland so that that relationship with it at club level definitely was, was recognised at international level as well and was was a big factor in me getting the games I, I got for Scotland. But, you know, I think Alec was always a people person. Uh, Wally was a people person as well because he obviously managed the team and did well with the team initially with Aberdeen when he took over. Um, um, but Alec just has that, had that more kind of quality person to person. And I certainly had a closer relationship with Big Alec uh, over the, the time that I was in, in the team with Alec. And, you know, he definitely helped me through the 89-90 season. Um, and that's, that's really good of Jonathan to see. Because there's no way I could have thought for a minute that I could have taken Wally Miller's place in the Aberdeen's team. When I took my place in 1985 and came to Aberdeen, I would never have, for a minute, think I'll, I'll be able to take over from Alec Miller, uh, Alec McLeish or Wally Miller. So I didn't ever have that intention and think that would happen. Obviously, in and penalty kick moment in the Scottish Cup final he kind of almost got to that level of, for that day of, of what Wally had achieved on a longer basis but you know it was just my goal wasn't to take over from Alec and Wally because there were legends and there are legends in, in Aberdeen's history and in recent times especially but somehow you know you got to a certain level of commitment and as I say this fan in the park that's the way I was as a player and so Hopefully the players look on you in a positive way in the way that I tried to get my attitude and my commitment through and my passion for Aberdeen and for football through in the park. And, you know, hopefully that not at the same level or the same ability as Alec and Wally, but you could have given what you, you had to the team and the, the fans appreciated it. 
So in the league, um, I mean, it promised a great deal in the league up to probably about Christmas time. Top of the league in December, a real purple part, patch after the League Cup final and Hans Heelhuis' arrival. Heelhuis' arrival also seemed to click Charlie Nicholas into goal-scoring form. I think he'd gone maybe um, nine months without a without a league goal and then suddenly, um, after Pans arrived, it was a hat-trick at uh, home to St Mirren. It just unlocked the tap. But after that, it seemed to fall away a bit in the second half of the season. Uh, it kind of coincided with uh, Theo Snelders missing from the side for, for a good while that season. Bobby Mims, um, I recall, coming in. Um, Brian, and just showed the, the importance of having a, a settled goalkeeper in a defence. I know, you'll never know, you know, how Theo had been there. It's no disrespect to Bobby Mims and the goalies that, that played while Theo was out, but, you know, we'll never know if, if Theo had played continually. Would we, would we be would be just too greedy to think could we have done, done the treble that season? But, yeah, the team was such a... It wasn't far away from... Rangers were really strong that season. Obviously, they were strong in that era, the nine-in-a-row era uh, that they did. But, you know, Aberdeen could have stopped the nine in a row before it was kind of in full pelt. The next season, when we went to the Ibrox on the last day and nearly managed to, if we got a draw, we could have won the league. You know, that's how close we were to, to stopping that nine in a row of Rangers. Um, but definitely, I think if we had Theo, that would have made it, well, I, I don't know, would it have, would it, basically, would it have got us a treble? Because that's all we could have done to improve in the season. Because as I say, it was a tremendously successful season, winning two league, uh, two cups, and runners up in the league. Um, you know, so I don't know. I don't know if it would have been. There was not very. There was not much between that Rangers team and the Aberdeen team at the time. The, the quality. Rangers had the money to spend. Alex Smith and Jockey were very shrewd. The Dutch signings they made meant that we were able to compete and be on a, on a par with that Rangers team, which was a strong Rangers team, let's not forget. Yeah, I mean, the league was still live until the beginning of April. I think there was a, a home game against Rangers um, that ended 0-0 around there. And I think if we'd won, that might just have given us a chance of catching them. But uh, that, uh, as I say, finished 0-0. And um, around that time, in fact, the following week after that game against Rangers, uh, the Scottish Cup semi-final. We'd progressed to that point with a 6-2 win against Partick, Bill Van der Ark, uh, scoring a hat-trick. A narrow, tough, muddy win against Morton in the next round. Um, a demolition of hearts in the quarter-final um, on the same day that Scotland won the Grand Slam um, at Murrayfield. Uh, Jim Betts and, uh, well, Brian Irvin again. Uh, amongst the goals as uh, we destroyed Hearts at Pataudry. Then the uh, semi-final at Tyne Castle. Um, Jonathan, if you were University in Edinburgh, I, I trust you made the semi-final that day? Exactly, game, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah I mean, it was uh, Dundee United were quite decent, but we were, we, were, we were very, very good. I think, um, I think Brian scored again, didn't he? Oh, of course he did, yeah. Of course he did, yeah. <laughs> Early um, on, which made a difference. Um, we got an early goal, and that helped to settle the nerves a wee bit. Yeah. Are you yeah, claiming two was. that day, by the way, Brian? No, I was quite honest to say the second one was mixed with Pat Alainen. Got, got the, the two of us went up for the corner, but Mixu got his head just in front of me. Um, if he hadn't put his head there, I think they would be hitting my head and then hopefully into the net, because it ended up in the back of the net. But it was, I was given two at the time, but it was actually only one ah. I got. Well, that is very honest of you. And I should uh, stress for any uh, younger fans listening, that was before Mixie actually arrived at Pitaudry. So uh, Dundee United scored two own goals to help us along the way that day. No, an early goal, you're right, Brian, I think inside the first 10 minutes, which is obviously um, usually pretty important in games between those two sides, which were usually close and competitive ones. But uh, but that was a bit of a bit of a romp that day at Tynecastle. Ten- at 4-0, it finished. So that took us into the cup final. The cup final was going to be against Celtic. Ten days before the cup final, final league game. Brian needed to win to to finish second in the league. But I don't think the manager was that fussed going by the lineups. It was quite an experimental lineup, quite a fringe lineup. You did play that day, but you partnered Willie Miller, um, who was actually making his what turned out to be his final league start for the Dons that day. But there were some young guys in that team, guys like Ian Jess, guys like Scott Booth, guys like Graham Watson. 
didn't matter. We swept Celtic aside 3-1 that night. Have you got any memories yeah. of that night? Yeah, it just had been a really convincing win uh, down at Parkhead that night. And what I remember is not so much the game, but in the way back in the bus, back to Aberdeen that night, that Alex Smith, again, good man management from him, took me down the front of the bus and the way back up and, uh, to Aberdeen and just said, because what he'd played that night and he'd played the week before, I think, against Mirren in the league game, and he's, you know, when he'd come back from the injuries uh, and his attempt to come back, and Alex Smith wanted to point out there'll be a lot of publicity in, in the week or so leading up to the cup final that Wally might be coming back in but just set your mind at ease and just you'll, you'll be playing and so obviously and then make sure that you have to make sure you train right and do right but you do all that things and you'll be in the, you'll be in the team so don't worry about what you read in the papers so I thought that was good man management from him because you know Rather than me having to worry about will I be playing, will I not be playing till the last minute, I knew that if I just got my head down, train well, uh, training at Petaudry, Aberdeen, sorry, leading up to the final, then I'd be on the side alongside Big Alec at the centre of the defence. So that was good man management, as I say, from Alex Smith. And obviously the reward for him was nice in the cake, if you like, was that I managed to hit the winning penalty. But more so for me in terms of your performance, along with Big Alec and the defenders, you'd played your part in keeping a clean sheet in the game. And that was that was our job to make sure we didn't lose goals in the game, and, and we managed to do that. And penalty shootouts, obviously, uh, is a different story. But the game itself wasn't the most exciting. But from a defensive point of view, we had done our job. It was very interesting to read uh, Jonathan that uh, in Brian's autobiography that um, that he had basically been told ten days beforehand he was going to be in the cup finals team because. Yeah, the speculation, yeah. the assumption, I think, amongst the, the support was that. Okay, Willie's back. He's going to play. Of course, yeah, yeah. Willie back, and um, you know he, he had been important in the in the League Cup final, and of course, you know, with Miller McLeish back again. But as I said earlier, the, the, Willie, of course, you know, great if Willie Miller came back, but Brian was playing really well. You know, the fence was really good. Um, it wasn't a worry. It wasn't. You wouldn't like sort of crossing your fingers because um, you knew. Knew Brian would do a, do a really really good job. Um, I'm trying to remember, and I'm thinking back to that semi. I, I, I've got a feeling that Bobby Connor had a really good game in it, and I think one of the things I remember about Aberdeen in that era was that we couldn't. To my mind, we had a lot of good midfielders without ever quite sort of getting getting the right sort of blend. And you had Jim Bet was fantastic, but then with people like Bobby, Brian Grant. You know, when Paul Mason played, he almost played as a second striker, and it, 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 it never. But that was all, it was always in my mind what what we were going to do midfield wise. I think Graham Watson was coming in at the time, or I can't remember which of the Watson was a midfielder, Graham or Greg, to be honest. Graham, it was. Um, yeah. It was Greg. Graham was a midfielder, wasn't he? Um, Graham was a mid, Graham was the midfielder, and Greg was a defender. Sorry, Jonathan. That's it. That's it. Aye, so think, thinking of, thinking about the lead up to that game, and, and it was always about what we're going to do in midfield. What's the you know, what, what's the sort of blend going to be like? And Celtic were a really weird team because they had they didn't have a very good season in the league, but they had all this talent. You know, their Jackanowski and McStay and Andy Walker, and you just didn't quite know what you were going to get from them either. Well, what we got actually was a pretty terrible cup final for the neutral, <laughs> for the not the neutral, but for the spectator in Ovan. I've no idea what it was like to play in, but. It was it was a pretty turgid affair. I think part, partly, Jonathan, to be fair, and it wasn't just the win with the fringe team ten days earlier, but we thought as supporters we went there that day thinking we're gonna we're gonna win this quite easily. Oh well, I <laughs> in as I easily mean, I, as you will ever win a cup final yeah, in Glasgow yeah, no, no, against I mean, the I mean, team from Glasgow. No, don't forget, we, we were better than Celtic. They, they were they were a funny team on the day. They were really good, but but we we were a better side. Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure I was thinking very much because what I do remember is getting a very early train from Edinburgh um, and my mate had managed to get hold of um, a case of... It was, called, it was actually called Hamden Lager and it cost about 50p for a, for a sip pack. And I remember having Hamden Lager for breakfast on the way to Hamden on an 8 o'clock train from Edinburgh or whatever it was. Um so I'm not, until about the penalty shootout, I don't have great memories of the match, shall we say. But I, I definitely came to my, um, 
came the senses for the penalty shooter and I do remember that very, very, very vividly and I was behind the goal, like, of course, but Brian had his moment of fame, but maybe you'd better let him take the floor. <clears throat> Well, quite, and of course, that's still your pregame ritual even now, isn't it, uh, Jonathan? Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, that's my recollection of the, of the 120 minutes anyway, Brian, a very sort of nervous, um, risk-free afternoon of football, which I suppose with, with a cup on the line, it, uh, it often turns out that way. What it was, though, because the um, season had to be finished early for the upcoming World Cup, it was going to be the first cup final to be decided by uh, by a penalty shootout on the day. So, of course, what happens is it goes all the way to that penalty shootout. Literally, from from the action itself, I remember Charlie Nicholas getting one cleared off the line by Paul Elliott, and that's pretty much it in terms of the action during the 120 minutes. Everything boiled down to the shootout. I think, you know, every Aberdeen fan who was alive at that time can probably reel off exactly what happened. Celtic missed their first kick. We then score our next couple. It's, uh, he says every Aberdeen fan can reel off exactly what happens and then forgets what happens. I think it was Bobby Connor who missed, uh, missed for the Dons. Someone will correct me though. Um, Brian Grant missed for the Dons. Of course he did. Um, Celtic score. Celtic are going first. So Celtic have the advantage. Charlie Nicholas steps up. Charlie Nicholas at this point we know is going to Parkhead the following season so we're not hopeful I don't know in the away end no. we're, no, we're not hopeful um, but Charlie no. Nicholas produces one of the, the coolest penalty kicks you will ever see under pressure well, I remember when Charlie walked up to that penalty we were talking you know is he actually going to try here because we just knew, you knew Charlie was such a Celtic man he was going back to Celtic and of course they, they were they were outside the top four or whatever. So Celtic's only chance of getting European football was winning the Scottish Cup final. And there was a bit of chat. And is he actually gonna? Is he really gonna score this? Because if he missed it, he'd have been in Europe. And it's almost it's almost the thing that I love most about Charlie Nicholas at Aberdeen was the fact he just went and scored a fabulous penalty. Put put personal stuff. Put his love for the. The tech aside and, 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 and scored that goal. And, and that, 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 you know, as his last act for the Dons, wow, forever, forever grateful for that. So the first five normal takers have, have, uh, have been up and it's ended up 4 4. So now we're onto the guys who really didn't want to take a penalty kick. Uh, so Alex McLeish, I think, goes sixth for Aberdeen as, as captain. He probably thought it was his responsibility. He scores. David Robertson manages to, um, um, get somewhat fortunate I recall he's kind of sclaffed his kick a little bit but it, it goes in so again I would you know taking second all this time always having the pressure on them knowing if they miss they have lost the cup Celtic continue to score Graham Watson, who I think was 18 at the time is about to step up to take his kick um, Aberdeen's ninth that day and um, a couple of the Celtic players in the centre circle try and get the Celtic support Get up and get noisy and put pressure on Graham Watson. Doesn't affect him one bit. He's um, he's ice cool and he sends Pat Bonner the wrong way. So then up steps Anton Rogan. Just before Anton Rogan steps up, Theo Snelders tries to do what the Celtic players did to the Aberdeen end, and boy did we respond. Anton Rogan then starts his run up from round about the halfway line, as I seem to recall. It's just one of the longest run ups I've ever seen for a penalty kick, and Theo pulls off a fantastic stop down to his bottom left. So that uh, means that Aberdeen's 10th and final outfield penalty kick is left to Brian Irvin. Well, that, as you say, Jonathan, you weren't maybe nervous about me playing in the game, but I think by now you'd be nervous <laughs> about me hitting this penalty. <laughs> but for me, it was a win-win now, because it, uh, as you say, Theo had made the great save from Anton Rogan, so if I'd missed, it would have went to the goalies and then back to the start again. But... Um, all credit to the, the guys in sudden death before me because that was where the real pressure was. Mine was a win-win and you didn't, you, could, you wouldn't lose if you'd missed the penalty. Whereas those guys were going to, if they missed, they'd lost the cup for Aberdeen. So Big Alex, Stuart McKimmy, David Robertson, Graham Watson, all take amazing credit. Even Charlie Nicholas was basically the start of sudden death because if Charlie had missed, you know, by that time that was it, it was all over. Um, but mine was a win-win, and so I was very thankful for the opportunity. Remember, 
go back to again the, the supporter on the park. Now we've got the incredible situation, the supporters on the park, and if he scores a goal, he's going to win the cup for your team. And that's literally what it was, Richard. Getting the chance to now score a winning goal for your team in the Scottish Cup final. That's comic book stuff, isn't it? But that's what it was like. That's what it was like for me. Well, I think there are two different, very different goal reactions. If I was to ever play for Odons, that I would have. One of them would be Neil Cooper's when he scored in the 82 Cup final, and it would be this uh-huh. sort of... Um, you know, bravado, get it up you to the uh, to the opposition fans. But the other one would probably be yours after that kick, Brian. Just the tears, the emotion, yeah. clearly showing. And just I remember Theo just grabbing, I, I almost sunk into his arms, or he lifted me up over his shoulders, or and he, you know, I was up over his shoulders in height, but he just lifted me up. Just a sense of relief and joy of of doing. The, the thing that I'd been asked to do successfully. I mean, even letting Graham hit a penalty in front of me, Graham Watson, a young boy, but it came down to a discussion, for example, in the halfway line where we said, you know, are you confident, Graham? And he was confident. And so I said, well, if you're confident, in fact, he said, I'm, I'm confident. I'll hit a penalty in training at Seton Park. I'll always think I'll score. So I just said to him, just go up and imagine you're at Seton Park, hitting a ball in the back of the head. But, you know, it, it was for the benefit of the team. That if somebody was confident to hit the penalty, then no matter how old they were, Graham was just a young boy, or how experienced they were, whether it was somebody like Alec McLeish, then you've got to go forward and hit the penalty. I was lacking in confidence, but as I say, with Theo's great save from Anton Rogan, a bit of relief, and I, I thought, well, there's a chance here if I can get keep my calm and put the ball where I want to put it, which I did, then... You know, it's a win-win situation. So that was my team philosophy, if you like, to say, well, my job at the time in the sudden death wasn't to volunteer too early and then Celtic score and it comes to me and I think, oh, no, I'm not confident here. You know, that's letting the team down. But by now, there's no, there's no getting away from it. There's nobody left, basically, other than the goalies. But the joy I had of hitting the winning penalty is just that the words don't describe it, can't put it into to justice. It's just everything you imagine as a fan what it would be like for you and your dreams well that's what it was like for me in reality I just want to actually say, uh, say a word about Graham Watson because um, I did reach out to, to Graham uh, he works with a friend of mine now in the police force and um, he said that he, he didn't he didn't think he played enough of a part that season to um, to really add too much to the conversation. Well, Graham, I'm sorry, but you, you scored in that cup final that day, and that's playing a playing a big part. Obviously, you had a, a career pretty much ruined by injury, so um, but you are remembered for that day, absolutely. I know, Brian, you're not, you're not necessarily a man for uh, huge celebrations, but I bet the bus back up to Aberdeen that evening was uh, was a good one. Oh, fantastic, yeah, great memories. Went back to the Cross Nest in Anstruther, mm-hmm. uh, spent the Saturday ah. night there. Yeah, and then in the Sunday we got the team bus back to, uh, to Aberdeen and just outside the Aberdeen, coming down, uh, just as if arriving into Aberdeen, we just swapped buses from the team bus into the open deck bus and then down Union Street was, was memorable in the open deck bus. So, yeah, great memories. Um, and I think all our families were on the bus. So yeah, and then you go away home after the game, and it's an amazing feeling because in a normal game in the season, you've got a game the next week that will probably bring you back to earth. But with the Scottish Cup, of course, you could enjoy it for the whole summer because there's no other game. I wasn't playing in any World Cups or anything like that, so you could just get the season off and just enjoy the moment. And it was a great feeling to think, you know what. Reflecting in the season, it was it was a successful season and an exciting season. I think for the supporters' point of view as well, I think they got a lot of games that were exciting. Whether we're speaking about five 0 against St Mirna, beating Rangers one 0 when Char- when Hans scored the goal, there was a lot of good football and some good exciting players playing well in the team. So it gave us a season really to remember. There's no doubt about that. And one of the added joys of uh, winning a cup, winning any cup for Aberdeen, but particularly the Scottish Cup, Jonathan is that parade the day after and just the way the city looks the way the city turns out the way that Union Street appears I know you probably might were probably back in Edinburgh instead of up in the up in the city that day but to have been a whole generation of Dawn support denied a day like that and yeah we won the League Cup and 
but that's early in the season. It's not quite as warm or as summery. Yeah. The Scottish Cup is special, and it's been it's been too long. It's very special, and I think the next trophy after that was '95, wasn't it? Yeah, Stephen Glass. So I think that that Scottish Cup final did bring to an end that era of a great glut of success, and a lot of those successes were at at Hampden Park, and the Scottish Cup was almost our competition for a long while. And, you know, good as Rangers were, and, and Celtic were obviously starting to build, um, coming out of that season, didn't think it was going to be, thought Aberdeen was still going to be in cup finals and winning cup finals. Um, and of course, nearly won the league the next year. So it's not as if it all ended then. You know, there was, there was still, there was still plenty of, of, of kind of highs, but, you know, that, I think that book ended the, the, the era of success really that, that 1989-90 season um, like you I would uh, I would definitely choose a Brian Irvin goal celebration um, I picture them in front of the crowd with their arms aloft very sort of simple but a kind of iconic celebration um, after that penalty shootout I remember Theo Snelders threw his gloves into the crowd my mate Dave who lives in Houston now but he might be listening he nearly caught one of them and he still still sort of talks about how he nearly caught Theo's gloves and um, yeah it, it, it's of course it's kind of sad to, to think that we've been denied enough days like that since but I you know I always come back to the absolute privilege of being an Aberdeen supporter in, in the 80s and, and you know all the way up to that that time how lucky I was and and you know that that, that, that's, I suppose that's the sort of I guess that's the full stop of that era for, for me but um, even though it was a it was a poor game one of the best penalty shootouts you'll ever see and really warm memories really fantastic memories of that Alright well that is our love letter to season 89-90 uh, my thanks to Brian Irvin who is intrinsically linked to that season Brian thank you Thank you very much Rich it's been a pl- pleasure and a privilege to have, to have recalled that season and, and speak it with two great supporters like yourself uh, and Jonathan and um, enjoyed recalling those happy days and to a man who was only a few feet away from me on uh, on that terrace at hand in that day Jonathan Northcroft Jonathan thanks thanks Richard thanks for that goal Brian and, and for everything we'll be back next time with another classic season to review until then come on you Reds